Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Droves, and for Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium has been an anchor on Edgewood for over a decade now. Coming up, we'll talk to Sister Louisa, also known as Grant Henry, and hear how his artistic path led him from divinity student to iconic bar owner. But first, comedian Dimitri Martin is known for his stream-of-consciousness humor. In a stand-up routine, he can go from one joke to another that is totally unrelated, piecing them together seamlessly. You might recognize his voice as the character of Ice Bear and Isaac in the Cartoon Network animated series We Bear Bears. Having worked on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, Martin went on to host his own Comedy Central show, Important Things with Dimitri Martin. It lasted for two seasons. He'll be performing his one-man show, I Feel Funny, at the Variety Playhouse this Saturday evening, July 9th, and he recently caught up with City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom. Martin began by explaining how he cultivated his signature style. Well, I've been doing it a while now. By now, you know, I'm about 25 years in, but it was about, I don't know, maybe two years into it, so 22, 23 years ago. I started with one-liners, and that is, I guess you could say, my bread and butter. I like to write these short jokes and tell them, and, and it's usually, that's that's most of the show. Sometimes I'll tell a story here or there, but really it's built, built on those jokes. And around 2002, I tried... And I guess I succeeded. I, I, I set out to make my first one-person show that was more narrative. You could say more like a theater show, perhaps. You know, but it was it was presentational. It was me really just telling jokes and some stories. But I tried to give it a shape. And for that show, it was around then that I thought it would be cool if I could present the jokes, you know, in different ways. And one of the ways I thought I could do it was to accompany the jokes with some music. And that led me to buying a guitar and starting to play guitar. So I started pretty late with guitar. I was 29, I think, at the time. But it worked. And so I, I sort of kept it in the act. And when I do a headlining show on the road, which can sometimes be up to 90 minutes, it's nice to break up the show a little bit. And one way I can do it is to do some of the jokes with a guitar. Yeah, I read an interview with you, I think, where you said... You enjoyed the musical element because you think it adds production value yeah. 
for people attending the show. That's that's very considerate yeah, of an audience. Well, yeah, I think I think it's important to remember myself as a comedy fan first and someone who likes to see live shows, music, comedy. I haven't seen theater in a while, but I have enjoyed seeing live theater as well. But, you know, any performer, it, I think it's important to think about the other side of it. And now that I'm a little bit older and I have a couple kids, I also think about people getting a babysitter and finding parking and what they had to pay. So I'm thinking, all right, how can I give them at least what they expected and a little bit more. So with what I'm able to do, I try to give as much as I can in the show. Mm. It comes through. Your comedy bounces around from improper snorkeling to dogs wearing sweaters. That was one of my favorites. Oh, thanks. Why do you avoid political issues in your stand-up? This is a question I've asked myself, and I'd say more so in the last, whatever you want to call it, five, six years, seven, eight years, but I, I feel probably like a lot of people, the intensification of the world that we live in, certainly along political lines. Years ago, I had an opportunity to be part of The Daily Show when Jon Stewart was the host. I remember. Yes, and so when they came to me, they said, hey, we think you might fit into the show. And I remember at that time saying, you know, I really appreciate it, but I think you got the wrong guy. I did. I don't really have any political material or anything. And they said, no, no, no. I think there's maybe a different kind of a segment you can do. See what you can come up with and pitch it to us and we'll see if it fits in the show. What I came up with was sort of this youth correspondent, which was pretty apolitical. I'd say about politics and my comedy, the same thing I would say about doing dirty stuff. I've tried over the years. There have been times where I have tried bits that were dirty or more political. And what I found was the audience, at least my crowd, they were, they didn't want it. They were like, no, not from you. Especially the dirty stuff. I thought, oh, that's a really well-structured joke. Okay, it's dirty, but I think it's a good joke. And then it would just be like a weird speed bump in the show. And the other thing I'd say is, as strong as my convictions are about my personal political views... I, I just, I don't know why, but I can't convert it into funny stuff, really. And then, this is a very long answer. You can tell I've, I've wrestled with but But the other part of it is, it starts from a very utilitarian place, which is, if I'm going to spend time on the jokes, if I can make them as generic as possible, then they have a longer shelf life. So if I had a good joke about George Bush or something, that's gone I've seen lots of friends have material that just vanishes, and I'm such a nerd about it. You know, dogs and sweaters, that seems like that would have a longer shelf life. <laughs> That's um, eternal. Yeah, potentially. I mean, as long as, you know, I know comedy kind of doesn't age that well, but at least maybe I get a longer run out of it. But really, the short answer is I just haven't really found a way to be funny coming out of this person on those topics. Interesting. This is your first tour in, what, four years? Three years since the pandemic? Mm -hmm. During that time of isolation, what inspired your new material? Well, I'm a big daydreamer, and I wrestle with that too because I don't know how much of it's escapism and how much of it's just 
working on what I really have to offer and sort of showing up for work each day, even if it's sort of ridiculous that I'm like taking a bath with a notebook and just seeing like what pops into my head. So that time at home that I had, as scary as it was for all of us, and for me and my wife with two young kids, you know, we had that variable to deal with. I was surprised that I had a pretty long run where I didn't miss performing or think about comedy that much or really do it. I don't know what I was doing, but it was probably eight or nine months before I started thinking, hey, I should maybe do something here. But I think for better or worse, because I am, I believe, one of the most irrelevant comics, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just think I'm sort of to the side. Not that much changed once I started to get back to writing because it was sort of the same process, which was, for lack of a better term, I'd say just daydreaming. You know, I draw, play a little bit of music, and I have, this is probably more information than anybody would want to know, but I, I have a few old typewriters. No, you're in good company. Tom Hanks, I mean, that's right. he collects typewriters. He wrote that book about I got some of those older mechanical ones, which, you know, you can get on Etsy or eBay or wherever. And what I found was it really helped me because it freed me from my computer and from the various screens that have invaded our lives. If I want to write a page of jokes, sometimes I can just take a piece of paper and put it in the typewriter and I write jokes. I type jokes and I put the date and then I just write a page of, I type a page of jokes. And when it's done, then I have a page of jokes. And I put it in a binder. Do you make copies? I do, but I don't do it often enough. I, sh I should be doing it more because a lot of those pages of jokes only exist there in that binder. It's a, it's a very imperfect system that I have. Sometimes I photograph the page with my phone, so I've got I've sort of brought it into the digital world. You've got backup. I've got I have backup. I should now now as you're saying this, I'm panicking a little bit because I'm thinking, when did I do that last? <laughs> But not that it's all gold. I mean, it wouldn't be that great a loss. But there are some good ones in there. Those are the ones that usually end up working on stage. You mentioned John Stewart and the Comedy Central days. How did important things with Dimitri Martin propel your career? Well, I joke now that, you know, it had its short life there. And that to Comedy Central, I think it turned out just to be things with Dimitri Martin. But I, I tried to trick him and say it was important. But I don't know. I think what helped me insofar as what that show did was as someone who never did sketch comedy, I didn't study acting and I had no acting training or anything. Not that I was doing any sort of involved acting for my Comedy Central sketch show. Let's be clear about that. But still, I... I started as a stand-up comedian who writes his jokes and tells them and pretty straightforward and not even really a storyteller they're jokes it's just a guy who has some jokes when I got the opportunity to do that show I thought hey here's a chance to try to get my sensibility to work in a different form and so I, w I don't know how much that propelled my career but creatively it was it was that step forward for me eventually I did get to make a film and I think having done those scenes and having written them, it was really helpful because the sketches were almost like little short films in that show. Yeah, one of the sketches was the men's passive-aggressive 800-meter race. <laughs> yeah. 
that was very funny. Thanks. Fellow comedians John Mulaney and mm -hmm. John Benjamin were part of this skit. It was so wonderfully absurd, Dimitri. What gave you that idea? How did that hatch? I think for, for me personally, and I don't think it's that unique as an approach, but when I discovered volume in terms of output, when I allowed myself to come up with a lot of bad ideas, more ideas came out, and then in that pile, I found a higher number of, of ones that worked. And that's true, I think, for sketches, when I had the series, certainly for my jokes. I'm working on a book of short stories. It's probably the longest gestation ever for some book of funny stories. But one year, I will finish it. But it's the same thing. I'm always just brainstorming, you know, trying to get those ideas. And so that sketch, I don't even remember, but it's usually the same process for me. And it's pretty boring, but it's really just me with a notebook or the typewriter or whatever, sometimes even dictating into my phone. But it's just getting out and getting down as many ideas as possible, no matter what they are. It's an idea for a drawing, fine. If that's what arrived, capture it, write it down. And there's last year's champion, John Benjamin. He's called not a big deal Ben because he always says it's not a big deal if you don't pay him back. But when he gets home, he beats his dog angrily. There's Michael Newman. The secret to his success, an incredibly small heart. In the number two position is John Mulaney. They call him the Cincinnati quiet ass. Eric Drysdale's warming up. He recently cheated on his fiance with a girl he wasn't even attracted to, just so he wouldn't have to get married. Next to him is Dimitri Martin. He's known for the shitty little notes he leaves for his roommate instead of confronting him directly. And of course, the newcomer, Kenya's Bimwala Mambutu, the first person in Kenya to break up with his girlfriend via email. What a. And that one, probably also inspired by, by like Monty Python. You know, I, I, I can't say it's like Python so much. I wouldn't give myself that much credit. But, but I, I love the absurdity of, of Python. Comedian Dimitri Martin speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzis. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis, and it's great to have you along. If you're just joining us, we've been listening to Lois's recent conversation with comedian Dimitri Martin. He'll be performing at the Variety Playhouse this Saturday, July 9th, and here, Martin shares his admiration for fellow comedian Stephen Wright. Well, I've mentioned him many times because it's the truth, and Stephen Wright, one-liner comedian 
was, I remember being such an important influence for me. Really just such a great joke writer and to me such an original voice in comedy. So Stephen Wright for me was a way in. I'd say Stephen Wright and Gary Larson, the Far Side cartoons. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, the Jersey Shore, which is not really known for its high output of great artists or anything. And it's not, at least where, where I was, it was very like team sports oriented. You could say obsessed. Whatever it was, wasn't for me. But I found my little portals to what was more for me. The first couple being probably Stephen Wright and Gary Larson. Later when I got into comedy and learned more about comedy and comedians and comedy writing, then people like Steve Martin, Andy Kaufman, Ellen DeGeneres, her her early, some of that stuff that she did on The Tonight Show, you know, Paula Poundstone, I always thought was such a great joke writer. There, the list, there's a lot of them, and a lot of them would be probably from the 70s and 80s, which, you know, places me as a kid looking at that stuff. Were there any other episodes or sketches that stand out from others you did on important things. I mentioned the 800-meter passive-aggressive race. Are there a couple you were especially proud of creating? Yeah, it's, sometimes I forget about them, and it's for me it's a good lesson because the show felt so important at the time, and I thought it was, oh boy, this is make or break for me. And it's incredible now, of course. It hasn't been that long, and most people would have never heard of it. And even probably me, the person who cared the most about it, forgets a lot of it. There was one that I liked where there was a, a kid who's writing his, his college admissions essay, or it's, it's like in his application form, he writes this you know essay, personal statement. If you could have dinner with any three people from history, you know, who would they be? And so I think we called it Dinner with Heroes. And this guy, this kid, he, he picks Benjamin Franklin, William Shakespeare, and Galileo Galilei. And while he's writing his essay, a bolt of lightning strikes his house and goes through his, down the wires through his computer. And somehow he's transported to a TGI Fridays with the three heroes in the flesh. And he's having dinner with them. And it's John Oliver as William Shakespeare, H. John Benjamin as Benjamin Franklin, and, and me as Galileo. And this was 2009. I think around there. But the sketch was, it turns out these guys are just leches. They're obsessed with the waitress and they're just hitting on her and saying rude things and they're just being real sort of dirtbags about it. So it's I, I think Franklin I definitely it, had that right. Is that right? Okay, so there we go. Yeah. And then and then just to see each of my friends, John Oliver and Benjamin as we call them, just to see their improvisations and takes on the, on their characters. The choices they were making, it just was a very fun day for me. It really made me laugh. That was a good memory. Mr. Franklin. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's do that. Let's sure. do the questions. Can you tell me a little bit? Uh, you guys all ready to order? You need another minute. Hello. Well, I'm ready now. I, I think we are, too. Let's do this. Let's do this thing. Um, yeah. <clears throat> pray, tell me, uh, might you be on this menu? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Shame, because uh, I'd order that. Uh, no, I will take the chicken fajitas. Hot. Spicy. Shakespeare taking it south of the border. <laughs> Not a TV. Okay, and for you, sir? What would you recommend, Kathy? 
the burger's good. I love a big juicy burger, huh? I'm not gonna lie. Mm. Does that burger come with warm buns? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be nice. And a salsa. And for you, sir? I'm gonna have a tuna club, uh, jalapeno poppers, and uh, iced tea. Okay, and for you? you know, I'll just have water. <laughs> Kids on a diet. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank Thank you, Kathy. Okay. Oh, oh. Ooh. That is the perfect gentleman. Boinga da boinga. Am I right? <laughs> Pure poetry. There were a lot of good memories and a lot of... I, I did have a lot of fun. I, I think I'm hard on myself because I, I feel like I was so uptight and worried about the show and everything, trying to figure it out. But when I think back to, like, that sketch and this, probably five or six others that... If I could go through the list and say, oh, yeah, that, that was a really fun one. I think that joke worked the way I hoped it would. For those who haven't seen the Cartoon Network animated series, We Bear Bears, how would you describe it? Well, I'd say it's there's a sweetness to the show that that I appreciate, that I like to be part of. But it's these three bears who are, uh, there's a grizzly bear, a, a polar bear, and a panda. And they, they live together in sort of a house. I guess it's like a, yeah, it's like a house cave sort of thing. But it's, I, I, I describe it as sort of sweet and playful. I think you could say sort of non-snarky comedy for kids. And I do think some adults like it too. But that's one thing that I, that I like about it for sure is that, you know, you can think about things, works of art or creative works, I guess you call them, on different spectra right would that be the plural of spectrum did i do that right but you know you can think of them on different sort of scales or something and sometimes i think about comedy on the the snarkiness scale because i did notice a lot of the stuff i liked when i was little it's probably because i was little a lot of it wasn't that snarky the comedy it was funny but it wasn't i don't know it wasn't so mean and um i think that became harder to find for a while i don't know i've lost touch a bit now i don't know what the latest comedy trends are but but you know what I mean it just felt like a, it was a different world of course and this is an older guy talking now but sometimes when I find things that aren't so snarky especially as a dad now I really I, I appreciate it do your kids watch the show they've seen it they've seen a few episodes but it's gonna sound stupid but we don't have I think maybe it's on the streaming services now but I didn't I don't have cable I didn't I didn't have Cartoon Network so I we never really saw it but I I would see clips and I thought, hey, I like the way that came together, you know, seems good. And do your kids know about Isaac and Ice Bear? Yes, mostly from their friends, because now they're in school. <laughs> and people are like, hey, your dad, is your dad Ice Bear? I'd say, yeah. And the, the, the gifts they'd give me from the show, which would be like a stuffed Ice Bear. Aww. And then they say, oh, this is you, you know. And now they're, they're a little bit older, so they're more familiar with it and all that. It's been kind of cool because our kids are still young enough that we're not out of control. Uh, you know, we can we can sort of control the media diet. And it's not like we're on a farm or trying to keep them isolated or anything like that. But not that not thinking against people on farms. I know everything's interconnected and people on farms do have high speed Internet and stuff. But more I was thinking more of like a little house on the prairie thing. We're not doing like a retro. They can't look at media, but we're sort of slowly introducing stuff. I'm still amazed that like there are young kids who are, can watch 
stuff that I think would give me nightmares. But I hear about some of the other kids from school, who, what they're watching and what they can. And I'm like, wow, you got like a six-year-old watching It? It's mm. intense. How old are your kids? I don't even know. <laughs> well, I think Summer and I were talking. Was one of your children born in 2016? <laughs> yes, yes. They're okay. eight and oh, six. Sweet ages. Yeah. Still, they still like me and still think I'm cool mostly. So, that, <laughs> so I'm enjoying that. I'm, I'm aware that that will change probably pretty soon. So, To your point about sweet or non-snarky humor. I think that's something that your fans, that those who admire your work, appreciate in you, Dimitri. And and I wonder if you would welcome or mind the description of your work as gentle humor. No, I think I take that as a compliment. The older I get, the more I feel like I understand that a fulfilling creative job or career probably has a lot to do with being authentic, at least for someone like me. So if I can understand what I have to offer that's truest to maybe what I am or how I've sort of come together as a person, then I feel like I'm on the right track. And I think it's interesting for, for anybody who makes content, and I, it feels like there are more and more people who do these days, it's interesting to think about the difference between what you might want to be, but maybe what you sort of more naturally are. I don't think the latter is unchangeable, but it does feel like there's a maybe a natural shape to a person's work. And you can go outside of it or fight it. You can try to be like someone else. You can work hard to be a different version of what you want to be or whatever. But when it's when it's aligned, it, it does there's a certain feeling, I think. So I do think I end up in sort of the gentle territory. You know, I, I don't think I'm the gentlest person in the world or the sweetest person, and I certainly curse a lot. You know, it's it's none of that. I don't think I'm necessarily like a clean comedian or any of that stuff. But like I said, I, I've tried to do dirty stuff. I've tried to do edgier stuff. If I get angry on stage, it's not funny. Like, I'm just not one of those guys. Like, for me, it's it's more what I en- have ended up doing. And I do think the crowd I get is a reflection of that. Mm. That's sort of the signal I send out to those people, and they find me. So we talked about the guitar. You mentioned making a drawing. You have been known to bring an easel on stage with cartoon drawings. Will there be any props on this stand-up tour? <laughs> yeah, there's the there's the easel. I have that. <laughs> and trying to think. I You know, I'm always trying different things, and a lot of them will appear for some shows, and if it doesn't work, then that goes away, or maybe it comes back later. But some of those things that people have seen me do, I, I have those things, and I'm trying some other things with, like, sound, some little sound cue stuff. Yeah, for me, the whole game is just how can I present jokes in different ways? I get a comedic idea, and it can work. It can work as a one-liner or as part of a story. It could work as dialogue in a scene. Maybe it's part of a list piece, right? It could be lyrics in a song or something. So it's kind of fun to take an idea and see what form it works best in. And 
you know, in case you didn't know, there's there's a real code, I guess, in stand-up. Or you could say sometimes people can be real snobs about it and say, oh, you can't have props and ugh, a song parody. What ha-? You know, I don't have any song parodies yet, but if I wanted to, if I wrote one, then great, I'll do it. But there are there are those who who scoff at like anything that's not purely, you know, you got to just have a microphone and a brick wall, you know, tough guy comedy, which is fine. I've done plenty of that. I'm, I'm saying I was tough, but I've done that. You know, I've done those rooms. I've done I've done it with those constraints. But I also like I, I like to be sort of experimental and playful with it. It's part of the daydreamer. I think so. You know. Yeah. So now that it's safe, safer to gather and with a live audience, how does it feel to be performing on stage again? Do you do you have renewed appreciation for your work? Yes, I, I would say that's how it feels. Yeah, a gratefulness for the people, for people who are coming to the shows, who whatever their comfort level is. At a lot of the shows, I start by, by thanking the audience and saying, you know, for those of you who are more like me and were really worried, special thanks to you. And, and for those of you who went out this whole time and it wasn't a pandemic for you, congrats. You got away with it. That's great. But yeah, I, I think it's just an extra appreciation for for people coming out and, and being in a public place and seeing the show live. And then I think at the same time as all of this sort of pandemic horror has happened, I think the world continues to get more and more splintered and more and more screenified or whatever the word is, but just seeing everybody's faces and their phones and devices and headphones and stuff. So even with that, I feel grateful that there's enough people that would still come and, you know, turn their devices off and sit there for an hour. Comedian Dimitri Martin, he's performing his stand-up show, I Feel Funny, at the Variety Playhouse this Saturday evening, July 9th. More information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, the artist behind Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium, Atlanta's own Grant Henry. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Grant Henry, also known as Sister Louisa, is the owner and creator of Sister Louisa's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium located on Edgewood Ave. When you walk into church, as it's affectionately abbreviated by its patrons, you'll know right away if it's a place you want to be. The bar plays with and spoofs off of church culture. Organ karaoke is performed in choir robes, and the walls are decorated with cheeky religious pop art created by the one and only Sister Louisa. Making light of religion is obviously not for everyone, and yet since opening in 2010, church has been wildly successful. It's become a staple of the Atlanta bar scene, and a sister bar has since been opened in Athens. The story behind Sister Louisa's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium is really the story of Grant Henry, and he joins me now via Zoom. Grant, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much. I approve your message. (laughs) I I thank you for that. So 
Becoming the artist known as Sister Louisa obviously didn't happen overnight. For decades, you leaned into organized religion. You were a deacon at the First Presbyterian Church in Marietta, and later you went on to attend Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur with plans to be ordained as a minister. So what was behind your decision to leave the church? Well, for me, church and going to seminary was a truth search. As much as anything, I had been involved as a child in the Methodist church and then went into the Presbyterian church after a marriage. And I was very involved in the seminary when I was there. I loved it. But I, like everything in life, I don't really attach to the outcome so much. I enjoy digging deeper into religion and into spiritual paths. And actually, by the end of seminary, uh, my goal was more toward pastoral care than actually, you know, leading a church. So I got to the end of seminary. And my understanding of when you got through the Presbyterian Seminary, you had to stand up in front of the church and say, only through Jesus Christ is salvation possible, being a Christian seminary. And I grappled with that, and uh, I had done work in the church and outside of the church that involved people who were enlightened from different religions or from their own spiritual path. And so I didn't feel it was truthful for me to say only through Jesus Christ is salvation possible. So they said, well, you have to say it. And I said, well, I can't say it. And they said, well, you have kids. Your kids will have good education, so you'll have a great job. You'll, you'll have access to mountain houses and, and vehicles. And I said, well, I didn't really come to seminary for that. I came more as a truth search. So I can't, you know, I can't stand up in front of the church and say only through Jesus Christ is salvation possible. So I either have to not say it or I have to just not be involved with the church, which is fine. It's been a great you know, experience my years at seminary were wonderful. So I left the church and actually walked across the street and uh, went to work at the Methodist Children's Home, uh, which is right in Decatur, and uh, started working there and doing, you know, individual and group stuff with kids and then moved on to another psychiatric hospital. So it, it wasn't a negative thing at all. And actually, I don't even care. I'm not really, uh, I wouldn't say, I couldn't say I'm a Christian. So, you know, they're the winners. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, here I am. So my my dad was a Presbyterian elder in Presbyterian church, and he was, you know, I think his main goal in life was for me to become a Presbyterian minister. And so he was excited. And unfortunately, he died in 2009. And I opened up Sister Louisa's church at the living room and ping pong emporium in 2000. 10. So he never got to see me have my own church, but I did get my church. And I do feel like that Sister Louisa's church is, is a church. I believe that the parishioners at Sister Louisa's church are as caring and diverse and whole and sincere and righteous and sinful as, you know, as the parishioners at any church in the neighborhood. And we have a lot of, you know, churches in the neighborhood. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Has there ever been any pushback on Sister Louisa's from the churches in the neighborhood? Well, when I first opened up, uh, there was this one particular Catholic priest that came over, and he came over on opening night. So I was bartending the night of the grand opening, and this priest and three nuns, this is not a joke, but (laughs) the priest and three nuns walked to the bar, 
And then they head straight upstairs and they're looking around or whatever. And then I had one of my servers come down to me and said, Grant, there's a priest and three nuns upstairs and they're taking pictures of all the art and they're taking the pictures of people in here. And what do you want me to do? And I said, uh, tell him to put those pictures on the internet, please. <laughs> you know, so then later the priest comes down with the three nuns and he comes to me and says, can I speak with you? And I said, actually, I'm bartending right now. And I said, maybe let's, let's meet on Monday. And um, started talking a little bit. And he says, well, you can't be, you can't be on this corner. We're church. You have to change the name. You can't be church. And I said, well, I've been doing this for a long time, you know, and I've been using Sister Louisa's church for you know, other things before. He says, and you can't have, you can't write on pictures of Jesus. And I said, well, with all due respect, those are like paint by numbers that some company made like loads of money off in the fifties, you know, they're paint by numbers that that's not really Jesus I'm writing on. And I've been doing it long before I got here to this corner. So, and he said, can't have Martin Luther King over the bar. Uh, so I have three velvets, three kings over the bar. One is Elvis, one is Martin Luther King, and one is Jesus. Big, huge velvets. And he, he said that it was, uh, I, I was mocking his people. And I said, you know what? I think if Jesus were here and if Martin Luther King were here, that they would approve of the crowd that's here. We're being good neighbors. We're washing our windows. We're cleaning up the corner of the street, which has never been done. So I think we're going to be fine, you know, as neighbors, but it didn't really work out. And my understanding is that they transferred him to another church because he had such a problem with um, Sister Louisa's church. That's a shame. Did relations get better with that church after that specific priest left? We have coexisted for 12 years now. And uh, I can say that there are pretty much zero issues at this point. That's good to hear. Let's back up for a minute. When did you start creating your Sister Louisa artwork? Well, as I was talking about uh, leaving the church, the, one of the uh, people at the seminary said, they're only words, Grant. They're only words. Just say the words. Just say the words. And I said, my mind just went to, you know, if they're only words, they're only words. Well, back in the day, in the 90s, I had an antique shop in East Atlanta. And it was called Resurrection Antiques and Otherworldly Possessions in the Church of the Living Room. <laughs> and uh, it was a total failure. And uh, <laughs> But I had a bunch of paint-by-numbers that were Jesus and, uh, and whatever. So there was an art show at the Telephone Factory where I lived at the time. So I went and grabbed all the paint-by-numbers out of my shop. And I started writing on them. So I did an art show with 66.6 pieces of Sister Louisa Art. I did them on windows, on paint by numbers, on pictures of Jesus, on boards, on whatever. And to me, it was like, so Sister Louisa Art is only, is only words. Mm. And so to me, it was like, you know, you can't tell me that you're, it's only words to, to, to basically lie to say only to Jesus Christ is salvation possible? You can't say that and then also have problems with the words that I'm putting on the paintings, which are all true. It's a it's Sister Louisa voice. You know, it's got to be that fine line between uh, reverence and irreverence. It's got to mm. be not an answer. It's got to be a question. I'm not here to make a case for Christianity, for the church, for any kind of religion. I just love the conversation and I like the symbols of things that people believe. And what I do with my art centers around religion. Uh, sexuality, and politics. 
And you mentioned the quotes on your paintings. They, you know, they range from raunchy to inspirational. Examples would include the higher the hair, the closer to God, trust the journey. The only difference between doing it and not doing it is doing it. At this point in your journey, are you still inspired by the same things? Yes. I mean, just today I went and stuck my head in an antique shop and bought a painting of a rose, just a beautiful, tacky, horrible, you know, painting of a rose. And I will put on that, um, he arose from the dead. You know, it's a play on it. Something else that I know a lot of Atlantans associate with you is your two-word alliterated mantra about fear, which I can't say completely on the radio, so I'll just say F, fear. You have branded the saying on everything from ping pong balls to hats. And I know as a human, you are not fearless, but I'm so curious how you got to the point to be able to change your relationship with fear. Well, a lot of people call me the, you know, the uh, fearless guy. They think I'm fearless. I think the reason I have to have it tattooed on my arm, uh, I think the reason I have to have it all over the bar, I think I, re- I think the reason I have to have it on a medallion around my neck every day is I believe I have more fear than, than most people. So I did realize in life at one point that in order to do anything, in order to be authentic. You see, I was raised to be correct. I was I was raised to follow instructions. I was raised to do what other people wanted me to do. So for me to get to the point when I thought, okay, this is Grant Henry, this is who I am, and this is the light I see in the direction I want to go towards that light. In order to go toward that light, I had to face a lot of fear. See, I didn't open this bar till I was 54 years old. Uh, so it wasn't until I was 54 years old that I finally realized I don't, I don't care. I don't care. I, I don't care anymore. I don't care if I please people. I don't care if somebody likes something or doesn't like it. In order to do anything in life, I've got to be authentic. And at 54, I'm 65 now. So at 54 to basically decide to figure out how to go through it, I, I pinpointed it's fear that keeps me from doing anything. So yeah, I'm, I'm the F fear guy, but I pretty much let go. I try to wake up every single day and look at, take a tally of what I have and who I am and where I am and who's in my life. And I go forward with that. I, one of my sister Louisa pieces is grieve it and go. And I have taught my daughter this her whole life. It's like, okay, Mary Grace, you have to wake up. And if you have to disappoint people in order to go toward the light that you see in your life, you have to disappoint people. It can be me. It can be your mom. It can be your spouse. It can be your kids. But in order to move forward, you've got to, you know, you've got to stay in bed with your authenticity and what your truth is in order to go forward. So I wish I had learned it at 20 or 30. Thank God I did learn it in life. Uh, But it's, you know, It's a hard road. Indeed. If you're just tuning in, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes, and my guest is Grant Henry, artist and owner of Sister Louisa's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium. 
Before opening church, you were a bartender at the local on Ponce. You even won Best Bartender of the Year from Creative Loafing, maybe more than once? Yeah, several times. I mean, they must, you know, I have no idea. There must not have been a lot of choices that year. (laughs) I had fun. Okay, so it wasn't until I was 44 that I started bartending. And I had moved to Mexico. I came back and a friend of mine owned Eats. And I went in there and I told, I just said, I just got a loft right around the corner. So I'll be eating here a lot or whatever. And I, I sort of need a gig to do something. And he said, well, you want to be my restaurant manager, my night manager? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I, you know, I even though I have a bachelor's in hotel, restaurant and travel. And I said, I do not. But I would love to learn to bartend because I have a loft with a bar in it and I'm not a drinker. So, but I don't even know how to make a rum and coke. And uh, so he said, go up to the local and talk to Danny. And Danny, he was the manager at the time. Tell him I said, to you know, to train you to be a bartender. So I went up there and talked to Danny. So he said, you can bartend on Mondays from four to seven. I'll train you. So I had three hours a week to train to be a bartender. I knew nothing. Literally, the the customers were amazing. The locals, they would sit in the bar at four o'clock. And, and they would say, okay, Grant, grab the glass. Now, now grab, there's a scoop in the ice machine. Now put ice in the glass, fill it up. That's ridiculous. So they taught me to bartend and we had the best time. It was a hoot. I was older. I was, you know, I was just sort of a unicorn in there. I wasn't supposed to be there, but I had a good time. So then one of their main lean bartenders decided to leave and open up his own bar in Costa Rica. And Danny said, do you want his shifts? And I said, no, <laughs> only wanted to learn to bartend. I don't really want, he said, well, you do it until I find somebody. And I said, sure. Yeah, I appreciate it. I'll do it. So I was at the local 10 years and um, <laughs> he finds somebody till he found somebody and then in 2010 is when i decided i just thought okay i'm gonna open up my own bar and then i wasn't even smart enough to realize what i was going to do as far as decor in the beginning but you know i had hundreds and hundreds of pieces of sister louise are so sister louise's church the bar is basically uh more of an art gallery that sells alcohol than it is a uh, bar that has art in it, uh, whether by intention or not. Here we are. I've seen that you throw your weight behind things that are important to you within the community. One thing I noticed particularly is that you stand up for voting rights. Can you speak a little to why it's important to you to use your voice in this way? Well, I realized that the corner of Edgewood and Boulevard is a pretty prominent corner there. And when uh, Stacey Abrams was running for governor years ago, four or five years ago, I wrote the campaign and I said, hey, listen, I'm on the corner and I think you're missing the hipsters. You know, the people that are down on Edgewood, there's really nothing for them. I really would like to invite you, you know, campaign down here. You're welcome to put things in the bar, on the walls, have a meeting, do voter registration in my building. Uh, found out that you you can't register people to vote in a place that sells alcohol. So we did a thing out on the street. And at the end of the conversation with her campaign, I said, for all I care, we can paint her picture, you know, her photograph on the corner of the wall. And um, 
then they came back and maybe two or three weeks later and somebody said, so are you serious about painting it on the wall? I said, well, the only thing is I require is it has to be on the corner because I think it'd be way cool. You know, I'm, I'm more of an artist than a business person. Luckily people love church. And so, you know, a stump could run it probably, but um, <laughs> I knew the visual of coming from Cramp Park and coming from Inman Park and coming from downtown Atlanta and, and also from like Freedom Parkway and whatever, having her, mural up there and Fabian did the mural for them and some people say it's the dumbest decision I ever made and some people say it's the smartest decision I ever made I would prefer the country be in a better place than me to have more money so said somebody said so you don't invite Republicans into your bar is that right <laughs> I said well, anybody could come in the bar whatever it's just but it's sort of a Stacy being on the corner and my artwork anyway it's a filter uh, people who don't respect other people don't come into church sometimes, or they'll walk in and they'll back out. But mostly it's like-minded people that come in there. And I think they're comfortable. And I think the reason most people love church is because it's, you know, more ignorant than anything that they could do in their life. So they're safe, you know? <laughs> well, Grant, to close up today, why ping pong? What's your connection? My parents were both school teachers. My dad was a principal and and my mom was my third grade teacher and my dad was my principal. And we were stuck at school every day until five o'clock when they could leave. So my brothers and I would be at school waiting for my parents to get through work. And they would send us down to the gym where there was a ping pong table. So I kick ass at ping pong, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love ping pong, although when I beat after I beat Ben Stiller and, and whatever his, the blonde is, I came in and beat them both at ping pong. I decided, you know what? I'm going out on a high. So I haven't played since. Oh, no joke. Yeah, I don't play. I don't play ping pong anymore. That is ridiculous. I also absolutely adore ping pong. And I find it really meditative. Like if you're not keeping score and you're just playing with someone else who can return really fast. Right. It can it can be really meditative. And I feel like I solve some of the best problems in my head while I'm playing ping pong. Yeah, I was always like that. And I loved it. Uh, before I opened up, I, we got this call. We we're building out the bar and got this call every day from this obnoxious kid. And he kept saying, got ping pong yet? Ping pong open yet? And I said, nope, not yet. Keep calling. So almost every day this kid would call ping pong yet? Ping pong yet? Ping pong yet? So on my grand opening night, this kid comes up to me and said, ping pong yet? And I just gave him a big old hug. And I said, I can't believe this. So this is you that's been asking me if it's ping pong every day. So he has become my best friend. And he started, he and I started businesses the same year. And he is Stephen Cars with King of Pops. Um, Who is also, I know this, a phenomenal ping pong player. He is. So we played a lot of ping pong in those first few years. Right on. Well, that was the most amazing thing to me at the time, having not owned a table. And I went many, many times to play and ooh, not used to playing with that much testosterone or competitiveness. <laughs> it was it was hardcore, but I held my own a little bit. But um, yeah, I've had the honor of getting creamed by Stephen from King of Pops before. You know, you unknowingly got ahead of what became a really big trend. There are ping pong palaces all over the place now. Yeah, well, some people get mad. I've, I've had several emails and bad reviews. 
So how can you call this thing, this is before we expanded, how can he call it an emporium? I went there and I was thinking there was going to be 20, 30 tables and there's one table. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because there are these newer places now that that's all they do. I was more about the word emporium, Sister Lisa's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium. It needed that, you know, it needed that word. Artist and owner of Sister Louise's Church of the Living Room and Ping Pong Emporium, Grant Henry. More information can be found on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights on WABE, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear about the Alliance Theater's upcoming production of The Incredible Book-Eating Boy, and we'll learn about their partnership with Children Read Atlanta. If you missed part of today's show, you could catch up on our website, wabe.org. There you'll find a complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your own schedule. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Summer Evans is our producer and our engineer is Shelly Canavy. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.